This is our last message in the series wherein we differ with traditional fundamentalism. As many of you know, I spent some 24 years traveling. Our ministry was particularly among boys and girls and young people. I'm used to talking on this level here. And uh, I used to have a lot of grown-ups who came to me uh, in our ministry through the years and say, my, we sure enjoyed these children's meetings. We got so that we started calling them family crusades because we had as many grown-ups as we had children in those meetings. And I have learned that many grown-ups are just children that are uh, older. Uh, and in their spiritual understanding and spiritual maturity, they need to hear the truth on the bottom shelf so they can reach it. And so if I have talked very simply, it's because it's what I'm used to doing. And uh, we preach this way in Denver, too. Our folks can, who are here from Denver can testify to that. And uh, I don't know any other way of presenting the truth. And uh, if it seems sort of elementary to you, those of you who are spiritual giants, you'll forgive us for putting it on the bottom shelf during these days. I did really feel when I was asked to take this assignment that it might be well to review some of the basic uh, truths that we stand for in the so-called grace movement. Our message today, wherein we differ with traditional fundamentalism regarding the mission of the church. Now, I know that some of you may feel that this has been a rather negative approach, but we've taken the negative approach in order to contrast it with the positive. This is the way we approach Bible truth in our adult class. In Denver, we have an auditorium Bible class, and it's made up of uh, uh, grown-ups, mature people, spiritually and otherwise, and also many young people. We have a number of high schoolers who attend this class. And I have majored on contrasting truth, comparing Scripture with Scripture throughout these years that we've been teaching the class. And that's what we've been trying to do in this hour this week. In our last study, we were considering, I should say in this last study, we are considering a subject which hasn't always been agreed upon by uh, great and uh, well-thought-of Bible teachers. Uh, the area of disagreement, however, hasn't been so much about whether or not we ought to obey the so-called Great Commission. The area of disagreement has been primarily on which of the accounts of the Great Commission we ought to obey. I remember Dr. James M. Gray. It was my privilege to be at Moody Bible Institute when he was the president. A very great man, a very sh short man, short of stature. And... Uh, he had very little hair on top of his head, so when he sat in the auditorium and the breezes kind of blew through there, he would put on a little black skull cap 
some of the older people here who lived in the Chicago area remember that Dr. Gray used to wear that little black cap. And he did it because he didn't want to get catch a cold. But I'll tell you, when he got up to speak, he may have been short of stature, but what a tremendous man of God. We just don't have any more Dr. Grays. There are none. And uh, as I said, it was my privilege to sit in some of his classes. And what a, what a privilege. I just uh, look back upon that as uh, one of the great experiences in my Christian life. Dr. Gray said that we ought not to keep the Great Commission in Matthew 28. He said that we should obey the Great Commission in Luke 24. Dr. Pettengill, on the other hand, and both of these men, by the way, were contributing editors to the Schofield Bible Notes, as most of you know. Dr. Pettengill, great Baptist preacher, I heard him many times. I remember one time we were at Gull Lake Bible Conference, and the song leader was leading some songs that were really off base. And uh, Dr. Pettengill said, uh, just a minute, brethren, I wonder how we could change this so it'll fit with what the Scripture says. Dr. Pettengill said that he didn't think that any of the gospel accounts of the Great Commission were for our obedience today. He said that we ought to obey Acts 1.8. And I guess we could quote others, too, who have had different opinions about this subject. And not all have agreed, great men of God as they were. Practically all fundamentalists, however, teach that believers in this age should obey the so-called Great Commission. Which of the five accounts of the Great Commission, they are not sure. Now, in the Berean Bible Fellowship, we reject the teaching that says that the marching orders of the body of Christ is the commission Christ gave while on earth after his resurrection. Why? Because, first of all, this commission teaches legalism in Matthew 28. It teaches baptismal salvation and miraculous signs in Mark 16. It teaches Jerusalem first and the fact that all of our preaching should begin at Jerusalem. Usually when preachers quote that passage, they say, well, Denver is our Jerusalem, or Chicago, or St. Louis, or some other place. And they have to spiritualize to try to make it fit. However, the account says Jerusalem first. And, of course, in Acts 1, in the, the same thought is expressed. And in John 20, we have, as we've already mentioned, the authority to remit sins or apostolic authority given to the 12 apostles. We further do not believe that the great, so-called Great Commission must be obeyed in order to have a missionary vision. What has been called the Grace Movement, and I really don't really uh, like that name, but uh, it's a common usage, and I think most of us know what we mean when we say the Grace Movement. 
the so-called grace movement began in this country with a foreign missionary organization, as most of you old-timers should know. The Worldwide Grace Testimony was begun by Pastor J.C. O'Hare. Pastor Stam was on the uh, board and also a representative of Worldwide Grace Testimony for a number of years. And from that first missionary organization, several others have sprung up. I don't mean that they had their beginning with Worldwide Grace Testimony necessarily, but there are several foreign missionary and home missionary organizations in the so-called Grace Movement today. I wish I could recommend them all, but I can't. What do we... What do we believe about the Great Commission, or the so-called Great Commission? We believe, as Mr. Stam has so well outlined in his book, Things That Differ, that Christ gave three distinct commissions. The first one was to Israel only. And as Mr. Stam says, that was a Great Commission, of course. We have it in Matthew 10, and these are all familiar scriptures to all of us. I'm not telling you anything new, but we are reviewing some things that we ought to be sure we understand. And for those who may not be real clear about this, I hope you'll take time to really study it for yourself. Matthew 10 is the first so-called Great Commission, starting with verse 5 talking about the twelve apostles, and it gives their names in the context. Verse 5, These twelve Jesus sent forth and commanded them, saying, Go not into the way of the Gentiles, and into any city of the Samaritans enter ye not, but go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And as ye go, preach, saying, The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Heal the sick, cleanse the lepers, raise the dead. Cast out demons, freely ye have received, freely give. Provide neither gold nor silver nor brass in your purses, nor scrip. A scrip, by the way, is a piece of luggage, something that you keep your belongings in. Nor scrip for your journey neither two coats, neither shoes, nor yet staves, for the workman is worthy of his meat. Here was the first great commission. We have a parallel passage in Mark 6. Let's turn there. Sometimes the parallel passages give some details that others have left out. Mark 6, starting with verse 7. And he called unto him the twelve, and began to send them forth by two and two. I suppose that's where uh, some of our cults get the idea that they ought to go out two by two. I always see them coming like that with their magazines. Have you noticed that? They seldom go out one by one. It says here that Christ sent the twelve two by two and gave them power over unclean spirits, 
and commanded them that they should take nothing for their journey save a staff only, no scrip or suitcase, no bread, no money in their purses. Imagine e modern-day evangelists going around without a billfold. Full of money, too, by the way. But be shod with sandals and not put on two coats. I don't know any evangelists that have only one coat. And he said unto them, In what place soever ye enter into an house, there abide till ye depart from that place. And whosoever shall not receive you nor hear you, when you depart, then shake off the dust under your feet for a testimony against them. Verily I say unto you, it shall be more tolerable for Sodom and Gomorrah in the day of judgment than for that city. And they went out and preached that men should repent. And they cast out many demons and anointed with oil many that were sick and healed them. Now, we have said so many times in our ministry at home that repentance, as it was preached by John the Baptist, by the Lord Jesus Christ himself in his earthly ministry, and by the twelve apostles, was very different from the message of repentance as is preached today. As someone has correctly said, if they are going to preach the message of repentance, they ought to go where it's really needed. Washington, D.C. But seldom is the message of repentance preached there. Repentance, of course, in this age, and I wouldn't deny but that people are saved and they repent when they are saved. I personally believe that faith and repentance are just like that. They're intertwined. They're together. Everyone who believes the gospel also repents. He has a change of mind. And uh, without a change of mind, how could I be saved? Of course I have a change of mind. Change of mind about sin, change of mind about God, change of mind about Christ, a change of mind about myself, change of mind about salvation, the Bible, and we could go right on down the line. Of course we have a change of mind. And that's what repentance means. So we believe that you, though you can't put them in sequence, and this is what most religious people do and many preachers do. They say you have to repent for a while before you can have saving faith. I do not believe that, and I don't suppose many of you do either. Faith and repentance cannot be put in sequence. They are together. When you believe the gospel, you also repent in this age. But the message of repentance is preached by John the Baptist and Christ and the Twelve as they were commanded to preach here. This message of repentance was addressed to a people who had a relationship to God, who were in a covenant relationship with God, and therefore they were told to repent. I always think that uh, we do more repenting after we're saved than before. Luke 9, 
another parallel passage regarding the first Great Commission. I don't know how long it's been since you have reviewed this, but it's important for us to understand. Luke 9, starting with verse 1. Then called his, then he called his twelve disciples together and gave them power and authority over all demons and to cure diseases. And he sent them to preach the kingdom of God and to heal the sick. And he said unto them, Take nothing for your journey, neither staves nor scrip, neither bread, neither money, neither have two coats apiece. You see, there are many details there that are the same. And whatsoever house ye enter into, there abide, and thence depart. And whosoever will not receive you when you go out of that city, shake off the very dust from your feet for a testimony against them. And they departed and went through the towns, preaching the gospel and healing everywhere. What gospel did they preach? The gospel of the kingdom, of course. And all of these details, all of these methods, all of this program was a part of the kingdom message and the preaching of the kingdom gospel. Healing everywhere. I remember many years ago now when a lady said to me, Don't you know that the Lord commanded us to heal the sick? I said to her, you know, did you read the next line? It says, raise the dead. Many dear people believe in trying to heal the sick, but I've never seen anyone yet. I haven't seen anyone. I hear they do it sometimes. They even try to raise the dead. But that program has ended. Now, this first Great Commission, as we said, was to Israel only. Mr. Stam says in one of his books, many of you read it, tells about the girl who was looking for the Lord's leading in her life, and she found that verse over in Matthew 10, go only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And she said, I know that I should go into Jewish mission work because she found that verse. And as Mr. Stam says, she didn't even think about the next verse, which says, go not into the way of the Gentiles. So, many sincere people, and I again say I don't doubt their sincerity, but they're sincerely wrong in trying to apply the first great commission to their ministry and their service for God. The second great commission also found, in fact, is found in all of the gospel accounts and the book of Acts. Look with me at Matthew 28. As we said earlier, Dr. Gray said that Matthew 28 wasn't for the church. Pettengill agreed with him. But neither one of them had the answer. I don't believe as great men as they were in the scriptures. Matthew 28, 
Verse 18, And Jesus came and spake unto them, speaking of the eleven apostles, saying, All power is given unto me in heaven and in earth. Go ye therefore, and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you, and, lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the age. Now the two things that I usually hear emphasized when I hear a sermon on this text is the first three words of verse 19, Go ye therefore. And then the phrase in verse 20, Lo, I am with you always. Now, if you forget about everything in between those two phrases, I could go along with you. And I could go along with those who teach that. But you have to read the whole verse, don't you? We certainly don't want to do despite to the Word of God and distort the plain meaning of Scripture. It's very evident that this was a message to the nations. Notice it says, and teach all nations. I remind all of you again that God is not dealing with nations today. I drive down the highway and there's a Christian group that puts out gospel signs on the highway, and some of you have seen them. I've read some that said, America! Repent. I assure you that America is not going to repent. And no nation is going to repent. And God isn't dealing with nations today. In the gospel of grace, God deals only with individuals. That's very important. It's very basic to see. God isn't dealing with America or he would have sent judgment upon this nation a long time ago, I think. Think of the ungodliness and wickedness that is rampant in the, in the world, and it seems like it's concentrated here in this United States. Now, I'm not an anti-American. I'll tell you I'm a pro-American all the way, and I thank God that I live in this country. I wouldn't want to live anywhere else. And I'm sick and tired of those organizations and those individuals who are always downgrading and um, casting disparaging remarks about our country. Now, I know that it's not perfect by any means. And there are a lot of things that are certainly not godly much wickedness going on in this land of ours, but it's still the best country in the world. And I wouldn't want to live anywhere else. You know, some of these subversives, if they took them over to some of the communist countries, they wouldn't even give them a trial. Line them up against the wall and shoot them down. That's what would happen to them. So I thank God that I live in these United States. And we still have freedom, don't we, to preach the gospel. Well, I'm not talking about that, but I... One dimension in this connection. Teach them, teach all nations, 
baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Ghost. Think of all the arguments that have gone, come up about that among our uh, immersionists and other baptismal regenerationist denominations. And, and uh, folks have uh, split denominations in half because some wanted to baptize in the name of Jesus and some wanted to baptize in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Ghost. May I remind everyone here that the Lord Jesus is God, too. And I, to me, it doesn't really make any difference if they want to go through that water ceremony, what words they use. But anyway, here we have the Trinity, of course. Teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. When anybody tells me that they are trying to obey the Great Commission, I say, do you know what Christ told those to whom he ministered uh, to do? Do you know what he told them to do? Most people don't even know. They ought to review some of the commands of the Lord Jesus when he was here on earth. Sell that ye have and give alms. Most people don't even look at that verse. There are a few who wash each other's feet in religious ceremonies. I remember I had meetings one time on the West Coast. And uh, I was in a church that I didn't know anything about them really too much, except that they had attended our meetings some other, in some other churches. And I had uh, uh, been invited to hold a week at this church. Well... The I stayed in the pastor's home, and the pastor said to me, he said, you know, we have a lot of people that come to this church, but he said, you know, when, at our communion service, we have the feet washing ceremony. And he said that a lot of people only come once, and then they leave, and they never come back again after that. Well, I could understand that. And I was kind of glad they didn't have communion the week I was there. <laughs> but I'm not just saying that, you know, to try to be funny, because I, I, I really felt sorry for them. And I tried to show this brother from a dispensational viewpoint that feet washing was something to teach humility. And it was never practiced again as far as we know. Anyway, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you, many more things which the Lord commanded, which most certainly Christian workers and preachers do not obey today. Of course we're glad that the Lord is with us. He's with us in this age too. But just to emphasize the go ye and lo, I am with you always and leave out the rest is being dishonest with the Scriptures. Mark 16, and this is very familiar too. I said the other day that uh, many take one of these verses and leave the rest go. I've seen on many church cornerstones Mark 16:15 Go ye into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. 
Now, if you just stop there, that's good. And I believe that I could go along with anyone who says that. But, again, we have to read what it says in the context. He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved, but he that believeth not shall be condemned. This verse has been twisted and turned around and made to say what it doesn't say. He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. Not he that believeth and is saved shall be baptized. That's the way it's usually read. And as we suggested yesterday, many people think, of course, that the baptismal, water baptismal ceremony is a testimony to the world. It was required for salvation, as this verse clearly teaches. He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved, but he that believeth not shall be condemned. Now, there are some people who want to hang on to this passage and try to make it say what it doesn't say, uh, say, well, the last part of the verse is he that believeth not doesn't say anything about he that isn't baptized. And then they cite, of course, the thief on the cross and so on. Well, who could deny, as Mr. Stam says, that if the thief had had an opportunity, he would have been baptized. That was the program, wasn't it? at that time. Most who teach baptismal salvation end with verse 16. They never read verses 17 and 18. But our Pentecostal friends, and many of you have friends who are in Pentecostalism, some very godly people, people who really love the Lord, they have trusted Christ the best way they know how. And uh, I believe they're saved, great many of them. And they hang on to verses 17 and 18. And these signs shall follow them that believe. In my name shall they cast out demons. They shall speak with new tongues. They shall take up serpents. And if they drink any deadly thing, it shall not hurt them. They shall lay hands on the sick and they shall recover. You have read, haven't you, in the papers in the last few months about those... Uh, were those from Tennessee, by the way? Or was it uh, Kentucky, someplace down in there? The holiness preachers who took snakes and uh, dangled them up in front of the audience. How would you like to have somebody at the BBF conference do that? They were simply seeking to obey what the Lord said here. I'm sure that was true, and I don't, again, doubt their sincerity at all. They must have been sincere to pick up a rattlesnake. <laughs> and then two of them drank poison right in front of the audience, and they died. You know, the sheriff had to step in and tell them to stop it. We are amused by some of these things, and yet really it's tragic, isn't it? 
It's just tragic. Some of these dear people have sought to obey the so-called Great Commission. And who is to blame for that? I would say that fundamentalism as a whole, who has held tenaciously to the so-called Great Commission, we are responsible. I shouldn't say we, because I trust nobody here holds to that. But fundamentalists as a whole are responsible for these kind of doings. They shall take up serpents, and if they drink any deadly thing, it shall not hurt them. They shall lay hands on the sick, and they shall recover. You know, I almost uh, am a little amused at the explanation. You'll notice that the Schofield Bible has a little note there on the bottom of the page saying that these last verses are not in certain manuscripts. But they are in the most important ones, aren't they? And you see, the, it, would, it would seem that there's an attempt here to get, a, get around this some way. Well, we can't leave out the scriptures to make it fit our particular views. Luke 24, quickly. You'll notice, won't you, that all of these commissions after the death and resurrection of Christ were given in that period between his resurrection and ascension. And the passage, of course, in Luke 24 is no exception. Look with me at verse 46. Luke 24. And the Lord said unto them, Thus it is written, and thus it behoved Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead the third day, and that repentance and remission of sin should be preached in his name among all nations, beginning at Jerusalem. Here again, notice the word nations, please. All nations. Again, it's national salvation in view. Beginning where? At Jerusalem. You know, if I was to obey that great commission, I would have to, well, I'd have to be a Jew, first of all, and I'd have to go to Jerusalem. Oh, but you say, my Jerusalem is Denver or Chicago or some other place. No, no. Let's not spiritualize it. Let's believe what it says and take it just the way it's written beginning at Jerusalem. And ye are witnesses of these things. And verse 49, And behold, I send the promise of my Father upon you, but tarry ye in the city of Jerusalem. doesn't say any other city. The city of Jerusalem, until ye be endued with power from on high. Jerusalem first. That's where they were to begin. That's where you and I should begin if we are going to obey this great commission. Acts 1.8. This also occurred before the Lord's ascension. His parting words on earth. If 
you read the context, you'll see that he's standing talking to his apostles, 11 of them, on the Mount of Olives. And by the way, when he comes back to set up his millennial kingdom, he will put his feet down on the Mount of Olives, as the book of Zechariah says. And the mountain will split in half as he descends and sets up his millennial kingdom. He said these words before they saw him caught up into the clouds, the clouds of angels that came to receive him. But ye shall receive power after that the Holy Ghost is come upon you, and ye shall be witnesses unto me both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and in Samaria and unto the uttermost or the remotest part of the earth. This is very near to the Luke account. Let's look at John 20. This also was given during Christ's ministry between his resurrection and ascension. Verse 19, John 20. Then the same day at evening, being the first day of the week, when the doors were shut, where the disciples were assembled for fear of the Jews, came Jesus and stood in the midst, and saith unto them, Peace be unto you. And when he had so said, he showed unto them his hands on his side. Then were the disciples glad when they saw the Lord. Then said Jesus to them again, Peace be unto you. As my Father has sent me, even so send I you. You have heard that well-known song that is uh, based upon this scripture, So send I you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them, and saith unto them, Receive ye Holy Ghost, or power from on high, as I said the other day. Whosoever sins ye remit, they are remitted unto them, and whosoever sins ye retain, they are retained. Again, the keys of the kingdom and apostolic authority. But most certainly today, none of us have the authority to remit sins, and neither does any man, even his holiness over in Rome, as they call him. We believe that Christ gave the greatest commission to believers in this age. Look with me, first of all, at Romans 11.32. Here is a verse which we should remember. Maybe we better underline it so we won't forget it. Romans 11.32. For God hath concluded them all in unbelief, that he might have mercy upon all. And I could just add, on the same basis. We have often said in our ministry that God put Israel up on a pedestal up here, a place of favor. They were God's chosen people. 
the rest of the world was down there and Israel was up here. But when God saved Saul of Tarsus and revealed to him the gospel of grace and began setting the nation of Israel aside, he concluded them all in unbelief, not only the Gentiles down here, but the Jews up here, and he brought them right down like that. And Jews and Gentiles, God looks at them all on the same basis today. I think that Romans 11.32 is a key verse. For God hath concluded them all in unbelief, that he might have mercy upon all on the same basis. You see, the message of reconciliation, as taught by the Apostle Paul, had never before been preached. I remember I was holding meetings in San Diego, Brother Spoolstra, many years ago, and I spoke for the CBMC meeting one noon, and one of the brethren, I, I, I stressed this fact, and one of the brethren that was there uh, was uh, rather upset because I said that the message of reconciliation, as taught by the Apostle Paul, had never before been preached. It couldn't have been. And I had to try to explain to this brother who was quite disturbed. He cited some Old Testament accounts of uh, what seemed to be reconciliation, but it was not the reconciliation of the human race, sinners, de hell-deserving sinners, to God. We have pointed out in our exams of our brethren who have applied for license and ordination that salvation and reconciliation are not synonymous. God has reconciled the world but the whole world is not saved, of course. We must receive the reconciliation, as you've heard several times from this pulpit this week. Which brings us to 2 Corinthians 5, the message of reconciliation. We'll turn to that in a moment, but I want to mention this other scripture, and then we'll look at both of them as we close. Ephesians 3, 9, And to make all see what is the dispensation, the fellowship, the stewardship of the mystery. Now let's look at 2 Corinthians 5. We have it, we have, we've had it read several times this week with real blessing. I'll tell you, you, you know, you never get tired of going over these passages, do you? And you know, sometimes, though I've read it hundreds of times, I'm sure, some word will pop out at me, jump out at me, as it were, that I hadn't even noticed before. And some truth will strike me. And I, you know, that's the wonder of the Word of God. And many of you have experienced it time and time again. And we haven't exhausted all the truth, have we? And no one person has all the truth either. You know, if, if, if one man knew all the truth, then we'd all be worshiping that man, wouldn't we? But because the Holy Spirit teaches us, we learn as we study and read and compare Scripture with Scripture. 2 Corinthians 5, 14. 
For the love of Christ constraineth us, or propels us, energizes us, because we thus judge that if one died for all, then all died in Adam. And that he died for all, that they which lived should not henceforth live unto themselves, but unto him which died for them and rose again. Wherefore, henceforth, or from now on, and uh, I just want to stop and say that the time words in Scripture are so important, aren't they? Henceforth, there is a time word. But now, a time phrase and again and again, the Apostle Paul uses these time words which bring us to ask ourselves, what time is he talking about? Henceforth, or from now on, that's a time word. Know we no man after the flesh. Yea, though we have known Christ after the flesh, yet... Henceforth know we him no more after the flesh, that is. How many people are always wanting to know Christ after the flesh? Songwriters have written songs, and I can remember when we used to sing lustily, He holds my hand. Now, if you want to spiritualize that, and if you like that, forgive me. But I'll tell you, when I saw that I was a part of his hand, a part of his body, I quit singing, he holds my hand. You see what I mean? We have a relationship today that no one ever had who held his hand or who touched his body or who heard his voice. We're a part of him. And that's why the apostle says, Henceforth know we no man after the flesh. Yea, though we have known Christ after the flesh, yet henceforth we know him no more in that way. Therefore, if any man be in Christ, there is a new creation. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. So many think that the old things that have passed away are old habits. Well, I believe the old habits ought to pass away. But that isn't what he's talking about here. He's not speaking of old habits or old sins. I think the context is clear that he's talking about the old things of the law, the old things of the old dispensation, the old things of uh, that which is going off the scene. And I understand that this is really in the progressive tense. It really is, all things are passing away. Behold, all things are becoming new. Because you see here in Second Corinthians, we're still in the transition period. And all things are of God, who hath reconciled us to himself by Jesus Christ, and hath given to us the ministry of reconciliation, to wit that God was in Christ, reconciling the world unto himself, not imputing their trespasses unto them. Say, is that good news? 
is that good news that God is not holding men responsible for all of their sins. What a hopeless thing it would be if we were to be condemned for our sins. But the sin question has been settled by the Lord Jesus Christ and his finished work upon the cross. Now we are to appropriate that finished work. And when we reject that finished work, we're as much as saying, I don't need anyone to bear my sins, I'll bear my own sins. That's what many people are doing. Not imputing their trespasses unto them. I underline that, I'll tell you. And hath committed unto us the word of the reconciliation. There's a definite article there. Now then, we are ambassadors for Christ, as though God did beseech you through us. We pray you in Christ that be ye reconciled to God. For he hath made him to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. I've said to our people, I believe that's the greatest salvation verse in the entire word of God. My, how that blesses my heart. We used to teach it to the children when we were holding meetings for the young people. I always use 2 Corinthians 5.21. And that great salvation verse is good news, I'll tell you, for every single one of us. What a glorious message to be able to tell the world, to tell the unsaved. I say that's where the good news comes in. God is not imputing their trespasses unto them because Christ bore our sins and the sins of the whole world in his body on the tree. Well, if I'm going to get through before 12, I better hurry. Ephesians 3, 9. Here's, here's the verse we ought to have memorized. And to make all see what is the fellowship or the dispensation or the stewardship of the mystery, which from the beginning of the world has been hid in God, not in the Bible, but in God, who created thee all things by Jesus Christ. And another definite article. To make all see. The word men there is in italics, as you'll notice. To make all see. I wonder how many of us have obeyed that great commission. This is our message. This is our task. The message of reconciliation and the truth of the mystery. God's secret purpose to make out of Jew and Gentile one new man, the body of Christ. And I close with one more verse. Go back to Romans 16, 25 and 26. We've been teaching Romans Sunday mornings in our church in Denver, and we've been in it about two years now. We're just, we're, I'm going to bring the 
last or the next to the last message next Sunday, the Lord willing, from this great book. I tell our people, Book of Romans is the foundation book of the entire Bible. Young Christians come to me and ask, what, where should I start reading? I said, well, don't read the Bible like a storybook and begin with page one. Begin with the book of Romans because that's the foundation book and you better have a good foundation if you're going to build a building. That's true in a physical sense. It's even more true, far more true in a spiritual sense. And understanding at least in a measure the truth of Romans will prepare you to understand the truth in the rest of the Word of God. Now to him that is of power to establish you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ according to the revelation of the mystery, which was kept secret since the world began, but now is made manifest and by prophetic writings, and I said the other day that prophetic writings refers to Paul's prophetic writings, we believe, made known to all nations, the Gentiles, in other words, for the obedience of faith. Much could be said about that, but I must close because it's exactly 12 o'clock. How important it is for all of us who are believers and members of the body of Christ to be sure that we're working under the right commission. How could a person who is in business or working for someone else be able to do his job right if he didn't have the right instructions. And how can you and I as believers, as ministers of the gospel, and that word ministers takes in men and women, please, how can we be ministers of the gospel and not know our marching orders? Let's be sure that we know that in the commission to the church, the body of Christ, it's to all men alike on the same basis. The first great commission to Israel only. The second great commission to Israel first. The last and greatest commission to the body of Christ alike, all alike. Are you obeying this commission? Of course, if you're unsaved, you can't, can you? If you haven't trusted Christ for yourself, how could you be in that, of, of any service to the Lord? And I would urge you to believe the gospel and to trust in the finished work of Christ for yourself if you want to be sure you're saved. Shall we stand as we close? Our Father, we thank Thee for these minutes in the Word. Reviewing these great and important truths, we pray that all of us may study to show ourselves approved, workmen that need not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the Word of Truth. Dismiss us with Thy blessing. May this be a great day in all of our lives spiritually. We ask in the Savior's name. Amen.